All right, we'll open up to Hosea. Um, Hosea is the first of the uh, the first of the minor prophets after Daniel. So if you find Daniel, go just a little bit further. And that's Hosea. Uh, I'm excited to be preaching tonight. <clears throat> really happy to be preaching tonight. It's been, uh, I think, the Answers in August series that we did, uh, I think that was the last time that I, that I preached or that, that was more teaching. Um, but then I got sick and was out for, for several weeks. And, uh, but God's been, God's been faithful in answering your promises. Uh, so I'm really, really excited to be, or answering, not, not answering your promises. That's our Advent devotion. Answering your prayers <laughs> for, for me. Um, and so, so I'm glad to be preaching here tonight. Back in October, we, I was at one of the football team dinners, and uh, October was Pastor Appreciation Month, and one of the one of the ladies, I won't say who it was, but one of the ladies, I'm not really sure what she was thinking, but she said, uh, as a great Pastor Appreciation gift this year, uh, the church, she had a great idea, she said, the church could give us a week off. And I, was, I said, like, what do, you, what do you mean a week off? And she said, like, we'll, just, we'll pick a Sunday in October, and we, just, we won't have church that Sunday. We'll give... All y'all the week off, and it'll be it'll be great. Uh, and I said, that's a horrible pastor appreciation gift. Uh, that's like the worst thing I could think of. If you wanted to give us a pastor appreciation gift, uh, we should have like a six hour service, and everybody get to preach uh, at least at least once. That would be a much better pastor appreciation gift than than taking the whole week off. Um, but so I'm thankful to to be preaching tonight. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Hosea, continuing this series that we've been doing now uh, for some time, where we're looking at whole books of the Bible, one, one, uh, just one sermon at a time, covering a, a whole book. Uh, and Hosea, as I've already mentioned, is the is the first of the minor prophets. Okay, so we got the major prophets and the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Um, and really, I think you all know this, or, or most of you do, but the only difference between a major prophet and a minor prophet is. Uh, just the length of the prophecy, the length of the book, right? The major prophets are the are the bigger, the longer books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, um, and then we have these twelve minor prophets at the end of our uh, at the end of our Old Testament. And Hosea is the first of these uh, minor prophets. Now, when we think about the prophets, uh, major prophets and minor prophets, both. But when we think about the prophets. When we think about the Old Testament, uh, we can divide the Old Testament into, into three sections. Um, the law, and then the, the, uh, the writings or the poetry, and then the prophets, okay? Uh, the prophet section, though, can be divided into, into two other sections, okay? Uh, w- you know, when we think about the Old Testament, we don't think about three sections, we think about four or five sections, the way that, the way that we think about it, I think. But in, in the Hebrew mind, they had these three sections, but part of the prophets, was the history and then like the teaching prophets or the prophesying prophets, right? So they would, they would take the book of Joshua would be in the, in the collection of the prophets because that was uh, part, of the, part of the history. And so we can, we can think about what we think of as the prophets, the major prophets, minor prophets. We can think about some of the books of the Old Testament being this, these history books that tell of, uh, of what God is doing in the history of Israel and what Israel is doing, what the people of God are doing during this history. And then we can think of these uh, teaching prophets, the major prophets, minor prophets, as being commentary on the history of Israel. 
explaining how God's thinking about what's happening in the history of his people and, and, and what he's doing among them and what they're doing, uh, how they're responding to him. And so if we think about Israel's history, um, the early, early history, you know, they, they were, uh, God called Abraham, they went into slavery in Egypt, and then in the Exodus, they're led out of Egypt, and they're wandering around in the, in the wilderness for, for 40 years, and then, and then Joshua takes them across the Jordan River into the Promised Land, and they begin to conquer that land and, and take it over and settle there as, these, as, as kind of a loose connection of individual tribes. Um, but then uh, they ask for a king, and so God gives them Saul, uh, and Saul lasts for a little while, uh, but he, he turns away from God, and so God takes the kingdom away from Saul and gives it to David. And so David's this good king, uh, and one of the things that David did as the king was he united all the tribes together into a kingdom. And so for the, for the first time now, you really had a, had a kingdom where all the tribes are not just this, this loose connected, loosely connected, it was a good king. And then when David died, uh, his son Solomon became king, and in a lot of ways, Solomon was a good king, uh, but in some other ways, especially toward the end of his life, uh, he turned away from the Lord uh, and, uh, and, and led Israel into, into sin in some ways. And so then when, when Solomon died, uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became the next king. And if you read the history there around Rehoboam, uh, Rehoboam didn't follow in the wisdom of his father Solomon. Instead, he turned... Uh, and, and listened to some younger advisors he had. He didn't listen to the older advisors that had advised his dad, Solomon. He listened to these younger men, these younger advisors that he had, uh, and, and they, they advised him to, to be harsh toward the people, um, to kind of uh, establish his, his authority and his dominance from the very beginning, uh, and, and, and he was too harsh toward the people, and the people turned against him. And, and what happened was the kingdom ended up being divided in half or not, not in half, but in, divided in two. And so most of the tribes uh, stayed with the, with the, the kingdom of, of Israel and this king named Jeroboam, uh, who came and challenged Rehoboam, became the king of the, the first king of the, of the northern kingdom, Israel. Um, and, and Judah and Benjamin uh, became a separate kingdom. They kind of seceded from Israel and they continued with, with Rehoboam in the line of Solomon. Um, and, and so, so at this point in Israel's history, you have, the, you have the, this kingdom has been divided now in half, okay? And so as we think about the prophets, the writing prophets, um, they're writing either to the north or the south or some other group, okay? So you think of someone like, um, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah. Most of the prophets that we know of in the Old Testament are writing to Judah, the southern kingdom, that was the more faithful kingdom that, that followed God for longer. Um, some of the prophets, like, uh, like Nahum, was writing to the Assyrians. Uh, Obadiah was writing to the, to the Edomites, to the nation of Edom. And so there, there are a few like that that are writing to other nations. Most of them are writing to the south. There are a few writing to other nations. And then you have two that are writing to the northern kingdom, Israel. And one of those is Hosea. Amos is, is, is the other one. And Amos and Hosea and uh, Isaiah and Micah, uh, they all lived around the same time. Um, Hosea is the final prophet to the, to the north, though. He wrote after Amos did. Um, he was writing in, in the mid-8th century, around 750 B.C., and then the, the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria in 722. 
So about 25 to 30 years, 20 to 30 years after Hosea is prophesying to Israel, uh, God sends judgment and they're, they're conquered by, um, by Assyria. The, the destruction comes. So, th- so that's who Hosea is. He's writing to the, to the northern kingdom. Uh, now, sometimes in the book of Hosea, if you're reading there, you'll, you'll hear about Israel, uh, which is the northern kingdom. You'll also sometimes hear about Samaria. Uh, and a lot of times you'll hear about Ephraim. And, and those are all just, just different names for that same kingdom, for the northern kingdom. Israel is the name of the kingdom. Samaria is the name of the capital. And so sometimes it's referred to as Samaria, but it's talking about the whole kingdom. Um, and then Ephraim was the most prominent, the most powerful um, tribe in the north at that time. And so sometimes uh, it's referred to as Ephraim, but it's all, all the same thing. And so what's happening during, uh, during this time? Uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, was a less faithful kingdom than the southern kingdom was, than, than Judah was. At least, uh, at least we might say they, they turned further away from God more quickly than the south did, okay? The, the southern kingdom, Judah, also eventually turned away from God and, and, and weren't faithful to him either, but Israel turned away faster and turned away uh, further. Um, and, and so what's happening when, when Hosea's writing here, there, there's a couple of, of main things happening. One is like society kind of wise and one is religion kind of wise, okay? And so society kind of wise, uh, the kings of the north and the, and the wealthy people, the powerful people of the north um, are consolidating power among themselves and they're, they're using it to exploit people that are, that are less powerful or powerless and, and poor, Okay, and so there's there's all this power kind of kind of struggles going on uh, in the north. The last six kings in the northern kingdom, only one of them died of natural causes. All the rest of them were assassinated uh, for other other people trying to trying to take power, trying to take control. And so you had this this struggle going on. You also had uh, you also had these uh, these kings and more powerful people that were consolidating. Uh, a lot of the land and, and seizing land from poor people that it, land that had been in their in their families in their clans for generations upon generations, uh, and they're taking all of this land uh, uh, unjustly, and, and 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 so these people that have lived there for 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 generations are now becoming tenant farmers or uh, or becoming slaves on their own land, this land that they used to own. So you have this kind of kind of thing going on in the society where you have the, the really upper class and the, and the really low class. Um, it, but as far as religion goes, Israel has really turned away from the Lord and has turned into idolatry. And so as you're reading through the book of Hosea, and hopefully you'll find time maybe this week to, to read through the whole book. It's only, I think, 13 chapters, 14 chapters um, long, uh, 14 chapters long. And so hopefully you'll find a time this week to, to read it, but as you're doing so, you may notice Baal coming up a lot. This 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 idol or this god named Baal, and we hear about Baal throughout the Old Testament. He was a Canaanite god, but uh, Hosea uses Baal kind of almost like a generic uh, generic for idol or, or or for God. And so they're worshiping Baal, but they're also worshiping these other Canaanite gods, especially these fertility gods, um, and and they're really highly influenced by this Canaanite religions. Um, again, especially the uh, the fertility gods, and and they're they're worshiping these fertility gods for both fertility for the land that their, their crops might increase, and fertility for the people that they might increase in in children and population, um, and and that kind of thing. So let's let's look at a few places here in 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 Hosea. Um, open up to chapter uh, chapter four, okay. Before we get to chapter four, though, in chapter three. 
Uh, and then later again in chapter 10, we hear about these sacred pillars. And so these are like altars or, or places of worship or places of, of veneration that are being set up in honor of these false gods. Um, in chapter 4 that we're going to read here in verse 12, it says, My people consult their wooden idol and their diviner's wand informs them, for a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot departing from their God. And so they're, they're worshiping these, these idols, but they're also looking to these idols as if they're, they're real, like they're, they're believing that these are real gods, and they're looking to them for direction. And they're using these diviner's rods, it says, or um, diviner's wands to try to, try to get the, the direction, the, leader, the, the leadership um, from, these, from these false gods. If we keep reading there in verses 13 and 14, it says they offer sacrifices on the tops of mountains and they burn incense on the hills under oak and poplar and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. So the people without understanding are ruined. And so it's not only here that, that, they're, that they're living in immorality and, and there's prostitution going on, but they're, but they're involving themselves in prostitution. The women are, are, are giving themselves to prostitution. The men are going and being with the women uh, in, in, uh, in, um, in prostitution relationships as a means of worship. And, and there's something going on, on here with the Canaanite religions where, uh, where somehow that plays into this, this idea of fertility gods and, and, and blessing on the, on the land and on the crops and, and those kind of things. But they're, they're doing these things as, as means of worship, as forms of, of worship. Another place uh, is in chapter 8, uh, verses 4 and 6 say this. They have set up kings, but not by me. They have appointed princes, but I did not know it. With their silver and gold, they have made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. He has rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For from Israel is even this, a craftsman made it, so it is not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces." Reading that, surely you would uh, immediately begin to think of uh, the wilderness and when Moses is, is up meeting with God and he comes down and they've taken their, their gold and their jewelry and melted it down and formed it into a golden calf that they're worshiping. Here now at the end of Israel's history, just 20 or 30 years before Israel is conquered and there is no more northern kingdom, uh, they're back to that same pattern of, of behavior, back to that same pattern of idolatry, worshiping these idols that they have made for themselves. So this is the, the situation that, that Israel's in. This is the, the setting that Hosea is writing, uh, is writing to. This is what's going on in Israel while he's writing, while he's prophesying. And Hosea gets this message from, from God. And we can take the book of, of Hosea and kind of divide it into two sections. Okay? And so the first section is chapters 1, 2, and 3, maybe a little bit of 4. And then the second section is chapters 4 through 14. Okay? Um, back a couple of weeks ago, Tyson Lott preached on Ezekiel, and he talked in Ezekiel about the idea of um, sign acts in some of the prophets. 
I don't know if you all were here for that sermon or remember that. If you, if you weren't, maybe go look that up online uh, and, and, and re-listen to that. But um, often in the prophets, or, or pretty often in the prophets, um, they're prophesying, they're speaking messages that God's given them. Uh, but, but often they also are, are, are given object lessons or, uh, or things to act out. Uh, and, and these are sometimes called sign acts that, that they're given to do. And so when, um, when, uh, when Tyson was preaching about Ezekiel, he told us that in Ezekiel, there's a place where Ezekiel is told to pack a bag for exile. He's told to dig a hole through the city wall. He's told to leave the city through that hole with his eyes closed. And that's a, that's a symbol of what's going to happen to Israel. They're going to flee as they're being conquered by, um, by, uh, by Babylon, Judah. He's writing to Judah, not Israel. There's another, there's another place in, in Ezekiel where he's told to take two sticks and pick them up and hold them separated in his hand and then hold them together in his hand, right, with the, his hand over the scene so that you can't see that it's two sticks. It looks like just one stick there um, together. Uh, he's told to do that as a symbol of the kingdom being divided in half, but, but being restored later on. Tyson talks about, uh, about Ezekiel laying on his side for more than a year and eating food that was, uh, that was cooked in a, in a rather unappetizing way. You can, again, look that sermon up and read that or hear that if you want to know more about that. Um, Isaiah uh, does this as well. God tells Isaiah at one point to walk naked and barefoot for three years. Um, and, and he does this with Hosea. He gives Hosea a sign act to, uh, to reenact or to, to act out in, in front of the people. Okay? And, and, and this, this act that he gives Hosea to do is, is, is pretty, uh, pretty well known among believers. Probably you know about it. And it's kind of what the book of Hosea is known for. Uh, and this is the first section of the book, this sign act. So look at, look at chapter 1. In chapter 1... Starting in verse 2, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. So God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. Okay? So verse 3, uh, he did that. He went and he took this lady named Gomer. Uh, she was the daughter of uh, Diblaim. And she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to Hosea, name him Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Okay, so this is the first son they have is named Jezreel. Jezreel means something like he, he shall not obtain compassion or he will not he will not have compassion. Verse five says, on that, day, uh, on that day I'll break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Verse six says, then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Now there's something kind of odd going on here because if you look back to verse two, it says, um, or verse, verse three, I mean, it says, she conceived and bore him a son. Here in verse six, it says, she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Uh, now we don't know for sure it's not spelled out, but it doesn't say she bore him a daughter, so it could be that she's, uh, she's not being faithful from the very beginning, and she's having, having children out of wedlock with him, right? We don't know that for sure, but that could be the case because it doesn't say she bore him the daughter like she did the son. But either way, she conceived and had this daughter, and God said to her, name him or name her Lo-Ruhamah. 
for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel that I would forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God. And will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. And then when she had weaned uh, Lo-Ruhamah, uh, she conceived again and gave birth to a son. Again, it doesn't say there that she bore a son to, to Hosea. It doesn't say anything about who the father is. just said that she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Okay? So, so this is the, the first step in this, in this sign act that God gives Hosea to do. Go marry this woman and who is, who is a prostitute and have children with her. Okay? Um, so, so there's a redemption kind of idea going on there, right? Where he's marrying her and removing her from that lifestyle and making her his, his wife, uh, redeeming her in that way. But, but it, it goes on. Uh, skip over chapter 2 for now and look at chapter 3. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to, their God, to other gods and love raisin cakes. I think this is Gomer again, right? Gomer has turned away from Hosea now, and, and he says, go love her again, right? Go and take her back again. She's someone who is loved by her husband, and yet she's a wife of, of adultery. She's committing a, adultery. She's going back into that lifestyle that she was in before. Go and, 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 and retrieve her from that. Uh, go again and love a woman who's loved by her husband. Verse 2 says, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. So he had, he had to buy her this time. So, so she's sold herself into prostitution again. Maybe she's involved in the, in the temple prostitution that's going on in, in the worship. Um, but either way, he's having to buy her now out of, out of slavery, out of, out of some type of, of human trafficking, slavery type situation. So he did that. I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her in verse 3, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. And so God tells Isaiah to, to go and perform this this act, perform this, this drama in front of the people. Um, and he says, this is not just something I'm doing for, for no reason. This is something uh, that I'm doing because it, it, it's a picture. It shows uh, the relationship between God and his people, between God and the Israelites, God and this northern kingdom that have turned away from him, right? And so Hosea is told, go and marry this woman who is uh, who has defiled herself and is, is, is in prostitution and uh, and, and, and that's what God has done for his people, right? He, he, he bought his people out of sin, took them out of sin, removed them out of sin. Um, and, and yet when Hosea did this, the wife that he chose turned away from him and went back into that uh, lifestyle of prostitution. And God says, go take her back again, right? Don't write her off. You have a, you, he, Hosea would have a right to divorce her and, and, and send her off and, uh, and that kind of thing. But God says, don't do that. Because your relationship with your wife 
is a picture of, of how I'm interacting with my people, Israel. They've turned away from me. Even after I've, uh, I've redeemed them and bought them out of this lifestyle and, and cleansed them and made them my people, made them my wife, been a husband to them, cared for them, provided for them. And even after that, they've turned away from me. And, and yet God says, I haven't turned away from, from them. So this is the first section of the book, uh, chapters one through three, uh, mainly tell that story. And then the rest of the book, chapters four through 14, uh, we don't have enough time tonight to kind of go through each, each verse or each chapter one by one, uh, but I want to look at, at, at kind of four points that are made there, or four things we see there uh, about what's happening. So if you think about those first three verses as like a drama or like a the sign act that's going on, then these next chapters, four through 14, are kind of the explanation of uh, of what's going on in the background, okay? So kind of, kind of, I've gotten your attention now with this, with this drama, with this story. Now let me tell you what what the Lord says, okay? And so the first thing we see in uh, in Hosea is Israel's unfaithfulness. Israel's unfaithfulness. The second thing we see is God's faithfulness, and then we see Israel's response, and then we see God's response, okay? And this is not a chronological thing that come, you know, starts in chapter 4 and goes through chapter 14. These are just four themes, I think, that we see scattered throughout the, throughout the book, throughout these chapters. So first of all, we see Israel's unfaithfulness. So, so look again at chapter 4, uh, and just look at those early verses there. He says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, in verse 1. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. Instead, there is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Uh, therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. So God's listing out some of the sins, some of the, some of the, the lifestyle attributes that are accredited to the Israelites. And, and, and we see a couple things here, I think, in, in just in this list of sins. One thing we see is that the people are living like the Canaanites. They're not living like God's people, right? They're living like the other nations around them. When God led them into the, into the promised land and they were to take over the land and drive out these other nations and, and, and set up the kingdom there, they were told to not be like these other nations, to be different, to be set apart. And, and God gave them the law, and in, in several parts of the law were specific regulations for ways that they were to be different. And here in this list of sins, we see them living just like the other people. And I've already mentioned earlier what was happening with the kings and with the, the kind of the power dynamics in, in the nation at this time and the uh, different people assassinating kings to, to kind of take over that position themselves. And, and, and we see all this stuff happening that's just like how the other nations are, Okay. Uh, that's one thing we see. Another thing we see is that, that their sin, especially in verse 3 we see this, because of their sin, therefore, he says, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes. And, and, and this reminds me of, of what happens in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve turn away from the Lord, sin against the Lord, and not only does it affect them, but it affects all of creation. And, and God, is, God is, 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 is setting up his kingdom and his kingdom has effects for all of creation, not just for people. It does have effects for people, and people kind of stand in as the representatives and the agents on behalf of, of the rest of creation. Um, but, but our sin has effects on, and their sin had effect on other, other parts of creation as well. 
And one of the reasons for that possibly is because they're worshiping all these other gods and idols that look like bulls and that are for the fertility of the land and things like that. Uh, and, and yet their sin is affecting these things. And so God is saying your, your gods can't even do what you're asking them to do, right? Your fake idols can't even come through with what you're worshiping them and, and, and seeking for them to do. Another place where we see Israel's unfaithfulness is in chapter 8. In verses 11 through 14, we read this. Since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they have become altars of sinning for him. Though I, write, though I wrote for him 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice the flesh and they eat it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. But I will send a fire on its cities and I will, uh, that I may consume its palatial dwellings. And so we see a couple things here as well. I think the, the first thing we see is that the, the nature of sin, I think this is always true, but here it's, here it's explicitly true. The nature of, of Israel's sin is, is personal. It's not just that they're uh, seeking out advantage from these other gods, that they're seeking out fertility for their land and for their, their families and, and those kind of things from these other gods, trying to seek out what they can get from them. It's a personal rejection of the true God. He says that, uh, he says that they've multiplied altars and they've uh, become altars for sinning for them. And then in verse 12, he says, though I wrote them 10,000 precepts of my law, they are regarded as a strange thing. The God who established Israel, the God who led Israel out of Egypt, the God who called Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, this God is considered strange now as compared to these new gods that they've gone off to. It would be like Gomer choosing to be with these other men in, in these uh, prostitution relationships and, and considering her family life and her home life with her husband and her kids as a, as a strange thing, a, a weird thing that she didn't want to be part of. It's a, it's a personal rejection. Um, and, and then another thing that we see here is, uh, is they're still offering sacrifices to God. They're still, they're still involved in the outward uh, signs of, of worship, the outward acts of worship, and, and yet their heart is turned away from the Lord. And so they're trying to have it both ways, right? They're trying to have, have their cake and eat it too, if you will. They're trying to have everything. They're trying to, to still have this, this God that, that, that's part of their history, part of their background, and, and yet they're also trying to, to put their hope in these, these gods that, that seem to be blessing these other nations around them, and so they go to worship those gods as well. And God says he will have none, none of it. He says, though they offer sacrifices and they eat the sacrifices, God says he is not pleased with them at all. And then there's one other place where we see Israel's unfaithfulness. It's in chapter 13. There's other places, but, but one of the places that I want to point out. It's in chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. It says, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, as they had their pasture, they became satisfied, and being satisfied, their heart became proud. Therefore, they forgot me 
So I will be like a lion to them, like a leopard. I will lie and wait by the wayside. I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs, and I will tear open their chests. There I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them open. One thing I think we see here is, and, and this is something that I think we in, in our culture, society, kind of our, our place in history right now, we are, we are susceptible to, part of, part of their turning away from the Lord is it says they were satisfied and they forgot him. They were satisfied with the good things he had done for them. They were satisfied with the, the good things that he had given them, and so they forgot him. And I wonder how often people in, in our day, people in, 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 in our place, even, even us sometimes, uh, take God for granted and take his good gifts for granted and, and, and become so satisfied with the things that, that God has done for us that we begin to forget him. Right? And, and we even begin to see it as things that we're doing for ourselves instead of things that God has, has done for us and, and has given to us as gifts. So we see God's, or we see the, the Israelites' unfaithfulness here, but we also see God's faithfulness in the book of Hosea. We see God's faithfulness. And I want to look at a couple of places where we see that. The first one's in chapter 11, the first few verses. We see this obviously in, in this whole drama with with Hosea and his life with Gomer, but it's spelled out in a couple places here. Chapter 11, uh, verse one says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. These are very, very tender images of a, of a father with his child, or even with a mother with her child, right? And, and one of the reasons that God is faithful to his people is because of his love. It's rooted in his own love. It's not rooted in what they've done. It's rooted in his own love. And this is what he told Isaiah, go to Gomer and love her, right? Even though she has not loved you, even though she has turned away from you, go to Gomer and love her and treat her well because you love her. And God's faithfulness to his people, God's faithfulness to his people, even when we are disobedient, even when we're rebellious, even when we forget him and turn away from him and consider him and his way strange, God's faithful to his people because of his love. And then the second thing we see back in, back in chapter 1, starting in verse 9, the Lord said to name him, this is the, the second son, the third child of Hosea and Gomer, the Lord said to name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people. That's what that word means in Hebrew. Lo-Ami means not my people. Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And then he says in verse 10, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And so even though God is saying, call them, you are not my people, 
They're about to go into, uh, into exile. They're about to be destroyed by the Assyrians, going to exile. They're about to lose their kingdom. And God says, call them, you are not my people, and I'm not your God. And yet God says, but I'm also going to say that you are my people. Right? This is a temporary thing. It's not, it's not forever. And so God's faithfulness is rooted in his commitment to his people. Right? And, and this is quoted later in the New Testament in Romans. Paul quotes it when he's talking about salvation being brought to the Gentiles and, and the Jews alike and, and the Gentiles being drafted into to God's people. And so God's going to turn away from them because they've turned away from him. God's going to call them not his people because they're acting like they're not his people. And, and yet God says, that's not going to last forever. There's going to be a time where I'm going to come back and those who were called not my people are going to be called my people because I'm going to make them my people. I'm going to bring them back to me, which is rooted in his, in his love again and rooted in his commitment to his people. So even though Israel is unfaithful, God is faithful, and God's faithfulness is not, is not based on their faithfulness, right? God's faithfulness is not based on their obedience or based on their, uh, their love toward him. God's faithfulness is based on his own nature, his own character. It's based on his love for them, and it's based on his commitment to them as his people and to us now who've been grafted into his people. There are two more themes I want to point out, though. The, the next one is, is Israel's, Israel's response. Israel's response. So let's look at, at two passages uh, we'll see here. The first one's in chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And so Israel is going to turn back to the Lord. Israel is going to turn back to God. And this is the whole purpose of God's punishment to start with, right? It's not a vindictive thing. It's not a, it's not a harsh thing. It's not just a, a vengeance for vengeance's sake thing. It's God disciplining his people to, to show them and to prove to them that they, uh, that they can trust in him and, and, and that they're not to trust in any other false deities, any other false gods. In fact, if we don't have time to read it tonight, but if we read through uh, a lot of the book, a lot of the judgments, the specific punishments and judgments that are coming on the people are, are going to be specifically uh, geared toward those false gods that they're trusting in. Like one of the judgments that's coming on them is that their fields are not going to produce harvests, right? And they've been, they've been worshiping these other gods and, and these fertility gods especially for the sake of their harvests. And God says, you're, you're trusting them, you're not realizing that I'm the one that, that's giving you the harvest and I'm the one that's blessing you in this way? Okay, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my hand away from that and, and let's see what these other gods can do for you. And the result is gonna be that, that they're not gonna have the, the harvest. They're not gonna have the, the provision that, that God has been providing for them. But there's another place I want us to see where Israel responds. Uh, it's in, in chapter 14, toward the end of the book. Chapter 14, verses one through three say this. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord, 
Say to him, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say again, our God, to the work of our hands. For in you, the orphan finds mercy. And here we see the people not only turning back to the Lord because of the judgment that's come on them, but turning back to the Lord because they're, they're realizing the error of their ways. They're realizing that God is who he says he is. They're no longer will we trust in the, uh, in the product of our hands, right? The work of our hands. No longer will we say our God to these false idols. But they're, they're recognizing God, that, that God is who he says he is. And they're saying uh, at the end of verse 2, receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips to you, that we might worship you. And they're, they're, they're uh, admitting their dependence on God, professing their dependence on God, their need for God's mercy, their need for God's grace. They're repenting of their turning away from him and turning back to him now and asking him to receive them. And then the last thing, uh, the way we'll end tonight is, is almost a doxology here at the end of the book that we'll read. And this is the fourth theme that's seen in the book, which is God's response to his repentant people. God's response to his people when they come in repentance. So we've got Israel's unfaithfulness, God's faithfulness, Israel's response, and now God's response. And, and uh, I'll start reading in chapter 14, verse 4. He says, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like the lily. And he will take root like the cedars of Lebanon. His shoots will sprout and his beauty will be like the olive tree and his fragrance like the cedars of Lebanon. Those who live in his shadow will again raise grain and they will blossom like the vine. His renown will be like the, like the wine of Lebanon. O oh, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like a luxuriant cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you tonight for the book of Hosea. God, we thank you for the message that, that you gave him and he gave to the people of Israel. And God, we thank you that that same message is true today. And God, I pray that you would forgive me, forgive us when we uh, take you for granted. God, forgive us when we desire the good things that you give to us more than we desire you. Father, forgive us when we desire those good things so much that, that, we, uh, that we seek them from other sources besides you. God, I pray that you would bring us close to yourself. God, I pray that like the people of Israel, Israel here, God, that you, would, uh, that you would make us repentant towards you. Father, prove yourself in our lives and then draw us to yourselves. And God, we even ask for, as, as hard of a prayer as it is to pray, God, we even ask for your reproof and your discipline. Even as Hosea says here, even as the people of Israel say through Hosea here, God, that, that you have torn them, but you will bind them. God, we thank you for tearing sin from us and tearing our desire for sin from us, as painful as that might be sometimes. And God, we thank you for, for binding us and for covering our wounds. 
And God, just like the people here of Israel, we cry to you, be merciful to us. God, accept us. And God, we thank you that you are our Savior. And we thank you that you have saved us through Jesus. And God, we thank you for him and pray this in his name. Amen.